Hello and welcome to PNW Currents, an in-depth podcast from the Northwest Progressive Institute that brings together thinkers from Washington, Oregon, and Idaho to discuss strategies for advancing progressive causes across our region and beyond. I'm your host, Kaya Burnt, and thank you for joining us. At the Northwest Progressive Institute, we believe that good legislation and good policies don't pass by accident. Where the ideas from increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour to Medicare for all, availability for rooftop solar needs sound strategies if they are to become a reality. Our team believes research is the key to identifying winning strategies, while advocacy is the key to implementing them. That's why we're engaged in both. You can learn more about our insightful research, imaginative advocacy, and our history by visiting nwprogressive.org. Again, that's nwprogressive.org. I will give you that information at the end of this podcast. So our topic for this month's episode is the status of our region's response to severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, the virus that causes coronavirus disease 2019, which is known as COVID-19 for short. At the end of last month, Washington and Oregon lifted requirements and restrictions imposed early on during the pandemic in what has been dubbed a grand reopening. Idaho, meanwhile, isn't far behind from lifting the last of its COVID emergency measures. Uh, However, despite the rollback of public health measures, the pandemic continues. Many people, especially in rural communities, remain unvaccinated and thus at great risk of contracting COVID-19's Delta variant which accounts for a growing share of all COVID cases worldwide. America has been hit hard by this pandemic. With over half a million lives lost, many survivors are grappling with the effects of what's been called long COVID, and we're learning more every day about how harmful those effects are. While the Biden-Harris administration has done heroic work to get the virus under control, especially on the vaccination front, much remains to be done, both in the U.S. and abroad. Recently, World Health Organization Director Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus warned, The world is at a perilous point in this pandemic. Far too many countries in every region in the world are seeing sharp spikes in cases and hospitalization. Joining me to discuss how the Pacific Northwest is doing with its COVID-19 response and what our region needs to do to keep cases down are Dr. David Pate from Idaho, Dr. Chunhui Chi from Oregon, and Professor Hillary Godwin from Washington. So welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. All right, wonderful. So before we get into our discussion, let's do some brief introductions so our listeners can get a sense of the expertise and experience that this panel brings to the table. Um, Hillary, would you like to get us started? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Pleasure to be here today. My name is Hilary Godwin, and I'm a professor of environmental health sciences and also dean of the University of Washington School of Public Health. All right, thank you. And uh, Chunhui, over to you. Hi, it's been a great pleasure uh, joining you. Uh, My name is Chunhui Ji. I'm a professor in global health and also in health management and policy program at Oregon State University. I'm also the director of Oregon State University's Center for Global Health. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And finally, to you, David. Uh, thank you. It's good to be with you. My name is David Pate. Uh, I'm a general internist uh, by training, also a healthcare attorney. I uh, am recently retired as the president and CEO of St. Luke's Health System the largest health system in Idaho. And uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I've been serving on the Idaho governor's coronavirus work group. 
All right, thank you for that. And I'm Kaya, your host. I'm an NPI staff member and undergraduate at Central Washington University, Spokane native and eternal and reckless optimist. I have a passion for ideas and catalyzing productive conversations that can spark long lasting progressive change. It's uh, wonderful to have you all here. So let's start off with a quick rundown of what's happening across our states. We'll begin in the Beaver State, which, like the region as a whole, is seeing fewer cases, tests, hospitalizations, and deaths overall. Still, hotspots along the Columbia River Gorge, including in the Pendleton area, are prompting some concern. Chunhui, can you summarize the status of Oregon's pandemic response for our listeners? Yes, Oregon, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, in terms of its overall pandemic control policy and approach, Compared with the rest of the states in the nation, I would say it's in the medium level, not particularly strong and not particularly weak. And uh, there are room uh, to be improved, uh, surely. And similar with uh, Washington state, we have uh, urban rural divisions, whether it's about the cases or about vaccinations, you can see the huge differences between the urban and the rural. And similarly, with the, the pandemic response, not just about the government response, but also about the residents' response. So for example, during, during this entire time, up till the, the recent vaccination, uh, if you go to urban area, whether it's in Portland, and Salem, Eugene, or even where I live in Corvallis, you will see the vast majority of people when they are they are in any public place, an outdoor place, most of them wear masks. But then when you across the cascade or to the south, it's almost the opposite, with the exception of Bend area. And so uh, the in terms of population's behavior is a huge variation. And with that variation also create a challenge and difficulty for the governor and for the health authority. Oftentimes, as I will observe, the level of stringency of major control uh, are often compromised. So for example, during the early time of the lockdown, it still allow a church together, which purely from public health and hygiene point of view doesn't really make sense. If you do not allow public gathering, uh, why with the exception of the church? And so that's an example of a compromised approach. And with that compromise approach, uh, we are bound to see the differences in how county, using county as a unit, how county fares, that uh, we continue to see high cases and low vaccination rate in, in rural counties. So I, I have been re, uh, reviewing and following the vaccination rate. And in terms of fully vaccinated, in the urban area, many states are approaching 60 or even higher. Whereas in the rural area, uh, many counties are still below 30%. And so it can be uh, misleading if we only look at state statistics, because within state, there's a huge variations. And I, I think every state are doing the same thing, try to provide incentives for those counties that are having low vaccination rate. And there has been a mixed result uh, of incentive, which later, if we have time, we can discuss about that. Yeah, we are definitely going to get into, we're definitely going to address that later. So yeah, thank you very much for that, uh, for that summation, Chinhui. 
So, uh, and, and then moving on to David, Idaho recently advanced to stage four of its reopening strategy. But my understanding is that how officials in the gem state manage the pandemic has thus far been pretty different from Washington or Oregon. How would you assess Idaho's pandemic response? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's very decentralized uh, in our state. Our, our state has seven public health districts. Those seven public health districts have boards, and certainly some are seem stronger than others. Uh, we have had board members promoting misinformation, uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, it's it's quite shocking that you can be on the board of a public health agency and yet have little appreciation or regard for accepted public health principles. In fact, a uh, physician was just removed from our biggest health district because he promoted uh, a mask mandate. So he has now lost his position. We're waiting to see who will be appointed to that board. We have had those board members who have pushed for strong preventative measures have uh, been the recipient of overwhelming hate emails on on occasion threats and on at least a couple occasions of people actually showing up to their homes to protest it's you know certainly been a a very difficult time Our, our state has done surprisingly well despite this uh, Oregon and Washington both had fourth surges. I certainly expected Idaho to have a, a fourth surge at the beginning of this year. We didn't, and I have no idea why we didn't. And that's one of the very mysterious things about this virus. In addition, right now, our transmission rates uh, on a relative basis are very low, about uh, five new daily cases per 100,000 statewide, although, as Dr. Chi was mentioning, a lot of variation in Idaho. Idaho also has many rural areas, some urban areas, and so we do see uh, differences. Our overall vaccination rate is quite low. I only look at, uh, especially with the Delta variant now, I only look at uh, completed vaccination rate. I'm not sure what getting one shot means anymore, used to mean something. So our completed vaccination rate is only around 44%. And of course, uh, one thing that we're, uh, some of us are worried about, uh, many are not worried at all, is, is what does this mean for schools uh, coming up? So right now we're in a good place. I don't know why we're doing as well as we're doing, but certainly we do see some areas where the infection rate is higher and is increasing. And so I think as we see across the country with overall growing rates, we're on the edge of our seats waiting to see what will will happen. And then Hillary, Washington's COVID-19 restrictions recently got lifted to great fanfare. A big crowd showed up for the first uh, for the first game of the Mariners post June 30th homestand at T-Mobile Park. How is the Evergreen State doing with its pandemic response? Pretty different from what you just heard for Idaho. Um, We have had, since the beginning, a fairly coordinated response across the state with policy being set by the governor, um, who works very closely with the Washington um, Department of Health, which we refer to as DOH. They've collaborated really tightly, and we've seen very good alignment 
um, in terms of public health recommendations and sort of government response at the statewide level. Similar to what you've heard for Oregon and Idaho, though of course there's differences between different counties. And uh, like you see in Idaho and Oregon, much of that those differences tend to um, fall into sort of the urban uh, rural divide. But that being said, I think we, you know we, Washington has been a really uh, great example of how, for instance, we've been able to leverage connectivity, not just in public health, but in our health systems across the state. So when there was a surgeon case in Yak, surgeon cases in Yakima, and their ERs were overloaded, that we had people medevaced to the Seattle area um, for healthcare. Really good, I I would say really good statewide coordination and good success rate in terms of overall the percent of the population um, that's vaccinated. So right now, if you count individuals over the age of 16, we are just hovering around 70% for the, the state of Washington. The CDC uses over the age of 18, and then we're way above 70%. But as you heard, big variation um, from county to county, from region to region across the state in terms of those percentages, with some counties being in the 20s um, and many being in the 30s in terms of percent of residents who are vaccinated. Nonetheless, we have still seen uh, our caseloads have really dropped dramatically, probably because the majority of our residents live in in counties where um, there's good vaccination rates. So we're down um, with a 14-day rolling average about um, 370 cases per day, which is fantastic. It's much lower than it's been in a very long time. In addition to the rural disparities, we're also seeing, I would say, big disparities in terms of impact on underserved populations and uh, traditionally excluded populations. And we see different rates of vaccination amongst different um, populations based upon their healthcare access as well. Thanks for those recaps, everybody. I'm sure we've all got a lot to talk about, lots of questions, so let's dive into our discussion. Mike Ryan, the executive director of the WHO's Health Emergencies Program, said recently that is uh, that this is, quote, a moment for extreme caution for our countries right now. The idea that everyone is protected and it's kumbaya and everything goes back to normal, I think that is a very dangerous assumption anywhere in the world. So with our COVID-19 restrictions having gone away, my first question to all of you is to what extent should we continue to mask up and practice physical distancing? If you wouldn't mind starting us off, David. You know, that's, it's a very tough uh, question. It's, it's certainly very easy with respect to those that are unvaccinated. You know, that's easy. Nothing has changed. Arguably, things have gotten more dangerous for those that are unvaccinated. So uh, the unvaccinated should not be changing any of the practices that we've been recommending for the past year. Uh, They should be avoiding large groups. They should be wearing masks uh, when they are indoors uh, with people that they don't reside with. Um, and uh, so the unvaccinated, it's, it's quite clear. Uh, they're at elevated risk. And, and part of that is just because so many public entities have eliminated their mask requirements once the CDC came out and said that fully vaccinated uh, persons don't, uh, no longer need to mask. So those mask mandates uh, went away, but those mask mandates 
actually protected the unvaccinated as well because everybody was masking. Now, uh, unlike what my colleagues here have described, I see, you know, in our state, only 44% of, of people are fully vaccinated. I can tell you, I, I see very few people masked, and I should be seeing slightly more than half masked when we go out. So I, I, I think that is dangerous. The far more difficult question is what should people that are fully vaccinated uh, be doing at this time? I, I don't have the same public health expertise that uh, Professor Godwin and, and uh, Dr. Chi have, but in my view, I have never thought that this was a, a vaccine or nothing uh, strategy until we were at comfortable levels where disease transmission is consistently suppressed, we're not seeing new variants and so forth. So I, I didn't quite understand why it was a, you know, a full switch from all these precautions to none if you're vaccinated. It, generally speaking, we would continue to exercise uh, some precautions when there is uh, high levels of disease spread. We certainly have not achieved herd immunity, uh, if that's even something that's possible. And personally, I'm not convinced that it is. And, you know, I hear people say, well, let me tell you about the science of the Delta variant. Well, you know, that, that, that makes it sound like there's some point in time where, okay, now we know all about the Delta variant. We don't know all about the Delta variant. We are constantly accumulating science and information. And I think for those people that have already made all their conclusions about the Delta variant, you know, I, I certainly don't uh, take that assurance. So I think that we still have to, although the, the vaccines clearly are highly, highly effective and highly protective. They're not perfect. And, and therefore, I do think there are certain groups of people that are fully vaccinated that still need to take precautions. I'm very concerned about people who are immunocompromised, either because they have an underlying immunodeficiency or they've got an immunocompromised situation from medications or medical procedures. I'm still worried about those people. We don't see such great results of the vaccines in them. It's important they get vaccinated, but they should not rely on vaccination protecting them. And I think I really put them in the same category as those that are unvaccinated. Their world has just gotten a lot more dangerous since the CDC guidance, frankly. The other group that is much harder to know about is the older population. You know, we've been familiar with this concept of uh, immune senescence, of the fact that older people don't have as robust immunity as, as people that are younger. We don't know to what degree, frankly, so far in data that's been made available from these vaccines, it looks pretty good in in the elderly. On the other hand, when we do see breakthrough cases, which are to be expected, by the way, that's not a surprise that we have breakthrough cases, but when we see them and when we see people that, while most breakthrough cases people aren't even aware of or they're mild, when we do see severe outcomes, they do tend to be older folks, people with other risks. So I, I certainly think it's not unreasonable for older individuals, and particularly those that have very severe underlying medical conditions, to still take some added 
precautions at this time until we do feel like we really do understand what the risks risks are. There are issues and certainly a lot of debate, and we just don't know the answer about whether fully vaccinated people may be playing a role in the transmission of Delta. We didn't seem to see much evidence of that before, but I I think one thing that frustrates me is uh, I I certainly look at a lot of decision makers that are making decisions based on the virus's behavior last year. And I think we have to realize that things are different. They were different with Alpha and they're different with Delta. And they'll probably be different with Lambda when that gets here. I think we shouldn't look at this as a steady state. I think we have to constantly be reevaluating. And I think that, frankly, for some of those higher risk people that are fully vaccinated, I'm not sure that we can be confident in the guidance. And therefore, I urge them to make their own risk assessments and, and certainly that and tell them that there's nothing wrong with taking some extra precautions until we know better. On the other hand, young people like you, Kaya, that are in great health, you know, you're fully vaccinated. I I don't know that you have much to worry about other than the possibility until we know better with Delta, could you possibly get it and transmit it to your grandma or grandpa, even though you're fully vaccinated? We just don't know that answer yet. It may be no, but we don't know that answer. And there's certainly some, some reason to be questioning that. So I I wish I could give you a better answer, but that's the best I got. You make a lot of good points. I do want to turn to you, Chinghui, with the same question. In your assessment, to what extent should we continue to mask up, practice physical distancing for unvaccinated and for vaccinated individuals? Yeah, I agree with what David just said. Uh, At the same time, given that we still need to accelerate to push for more vaccination, there's uh, this delicate balance of messaging. Because uh, earlier, I think in April, up to April and early May, CDC was facing that challenge. Because before CDC changed guideline for people who are fully vaccinated, uh, basically before they changed that, uh, its guideline remained the same. That raised uh, the, the major question about those who hesitant to be vaccinated. They asked, then what's the point of getting vaccinated if that doesn't change? our accessibility of activities. So we need to bear that in mind in terms of messaging. That is, we still need to encourage people to get vaccinated. Well, I agree with, with David's uh, uh, comment. I, I just want to supplement. Oftentimes, people have misinterpretation about those uh, protection rate from the clinical trial. They mistakenly interpret that as, say, if Pfizer has a clinical trial data suggesting 95% protection from infection or from symptom, and they interpret that as, if I am fully vaccinated, I have 95% protection. That's not the correct way to interpret that. Based on the clinical trial data, the correct way to interpret that is out of every 100 people who are fully vaccinated, if, say, the protection rate is 95%, that means 95 out of 100 are 100% effective in preventing them from having symptoms, but the other five are not. Or we can boldly say for the other five, the protection rate is zero or close to zero. And so with that in mind, the the appropriate or correct interpretation of the protection you get from the the vaccine, one thing I I particularly want to note, uh, as David also alluded to, is People who are immune compromised or with a severe chronic condition, particularly cancer. Uh, I have reviewed the data. Uh, I think almost none of the available 
uh, vaccine during their clinical trial, they include cancer patients as their sample. That means we have very little data on to what extent uh, cancer patients are protected, and that part needs to be investigated. At the same time, they did include a lot of chronic conditions, whether it's hypertension or even diabetes. So these were included. And so the appropriate interpretation of the protection, uh, if you want to be more detailed, is to look back into who were included in those clinical trials. And for those diseases, uh, patients like cancer that were not included, you have to take extra caution because we don't know at this point to what extent fully vaccinated are protected. And in terms of masks, uh, again, anyone who are fully vaccinated but have cancer or other chronic conditions, I would advise uh, taking more caution, uh, continue to wear masks if you're in the public indoor places and, and of course, in public transportation. But also, uh, one point uh, that people often neglected, we still have our entire population who are 12 and under unvaccinated. So I have seen many parents who are fully vaccinated started to take the advantage of summer, uh, start to travel to party, but they neglected to protect their children. So I would strongly advise the audience that if you have children unvaccinated, when you are doing any social gathering or travel, remember, please remember to protect the children. Well, children generally are more resilient, but they can still, if they're infected, they can transmit the virus into your family or other friends. And again, the vaccine is not 100% protective that we can still be at risk. At the same time, by now we know, uh, David made, made a very good point. Uh, in terms of this uh, COVID-19, it's a new disease. So we continue to learn new knowledge. And oftentimes, uh, our new knowledge we learn overstrong what we knew last year. And so one thing we know by now is the, the, the virus will develop new variant in places or populations where they found a rich breeding ground. So one of the big concern now, uh, besides the region that have less vaccination, is whether over time the, the virus might develop a new variant that particularly are prone to attack younger population. And that's why I think the protecting the unvaccinated, especially children, uh, will be very important. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Qinghui. Uh, especially the point about children, especially in multi-generational households where they could expose older folks like David mentioned. Now, before we move on to vaccines, Hillary, I want to get your thoughts on masking and maintaining physical distancing. What are your thoughts on what types of precautions we should be taking? I agree with um, what we've heard so far completely. And I guess I would say in addition to people who are most vulnerable, um, taking extra steps to protect themselves, where we know, and we know now masking actually is a very effective strategy for um, protecting individuals. I would say the other place that I would recommend that people really think about um, masking up, again, even if you're vaccinated, is in situations where you have a high potential for exposure. So that's, for instance, the reason that there's a requirement when you're on public transportation that everyone be masked is because you have a lot of people that are in 
close proximity to each other and they're mixing from all different areas right so the and the probably the greatest situation for that uh, for us in the united states is in the airports right you have people who are coming literally from all over the world and mixing with large numbers of other people that's a high high potential for exposure situation and a situation where everyone should be fully masked but likewise if you're traveling to a region where a large percentage of the population is still unvaccinated that's another situation where there's high potential for exposure so or if you're living in one of those regions for sure then you you might still want to stay masked when you're in public places particularly indoors if you're in an area that has very few people vaccinated, a small percentage of the population vaccinated, and a high level of disease transmission. So that could be rural counties and all of our states. But the one that I keep reminding people about is, you know, people are getting excited of like, woo, we're, we're open in Washington and thinking about, you know, international travel again. Things are not good in many parts of the world. There, there is, we are so privileged to live here in the United States where we have good access to three fantastic vaccines. And most people in the world don't have that kind of access. So we're still seeing really high disease transmission and emergence of new variants um, in many regions of the world. And if you, I would say, if you need to travel to those areas, absolutely continuing to mask as the WHO has recommended, regardless of your vaccination status is, is really critical. And most importantly, get vaccinated before you travel. Excellent points, Hillary. This would be a great time to start talking about vaccination as that is still an ongoing challenge. So, you know, since the FDA approved vaccines of the Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, the United States and Pacific Northwest have made distributing and administering the vaccines the focus of their pandemic response. So the latest data suggests that supermajorities in Washington and Oregon have been vaccinated, but in Idaho, as you mentioned, David, only 40% across all ages have received at least one dose and only 37% are fully vaccinated. So that means that the gem state has the furthest to go in inoculating its people. David, what are your thoughts on combating vaccine hesitancy and bolstering Idaho's vaccination rate? Well, Kai, it's a very good question, but a very difficult one to answer. You know, I've had many, many discussions with people that were vaccine hesitant. Uh, I don't have too many conversations with people that are vaccine resistant because it will just drive you to drink. So I'm careful where I spend my time. But I recently had a meeting with about uh, 15 parents who were hesitant about getting their teenage daughters vaccinated. So we had an hour discussion and I'm pleased to say by the end of it, all agreed and I did get confirmation, they all followed up and did get their children vaccinated. So it, it is possible to move those who are hesitant, but I would, pardon the pun, be hesitant to put them all into one basket either. They have various different concerns. Certainly there's been a lot of misinformation uh, some people may be concerned because of some of this misinformation. So it may be a matter of straightening that out. Others are, are thinking, well, you know, I will eventually get my child or myself vaccinated. But, you know, there's not a need to right now because our 
cases are low and let me just wait for a while and you know plus I'll learn more about how everybody else is doing so that could be a reason and I think rather than taking this approach where I've got you know people that are vaccine hesitant and I'm just going to go out and tell them why they should get vaccinated I think we need to do it in reverse we need to start out and just ask okay tell me what you're concerned about tell me what's holding you back because we don't need to go on with a, our lecture about vaccines if we're not going to hit what their point is. So we just need to hear from them, what is it? Hopefully, some of those discussions are happening with their personal physicians. Hopefully, there are people that are influential to them that are able to uh, give them the reassurance. Hopefully, they can look to good sources to get information, but um, I do think it's different for for different people. You know, the incentives, I, I think it'll be interesting once we really can get some data to see, did that really move the dial? I certainly am not under any illusion that for those that are vaccine resistant, that creating incentives is going to move the dial. Question would be, is it going to move the dial for some of those that are just kind of on the edge? And And I don't know the answer to that. I think another part of it is with people that are hesitant, maybe it's somebody like you, Kaya, that's that's young, healthy, you know, why do I need to get vaccinated? Even if I get COVID, my chances of being sick or being hospitalized or dying are pretty low. I, I think we have to make sure people understand there are more reasons to get vaccinated than just to keep you from dying. I mean, that's an important reason to get vaccinated, but it's it's not just you, it's to protect others. And frankly, there's some bad things that can happen to you, even if you survive COVID. And we're certainly learning more and more about that. Certainly, I've, I've talked to people with long COVID, and let me tell you, not one of them has told me that if they had it all to do over again, that they wouldn't have gotten vaccinated to prevent having to go through what they've gone through. So we, we need to help people understand it's not just about keeping you from dying. It's about helping prevent you from infecting other people. It's about effect, preventing you from getting other kinds of complications from it. And frankly, what is just causing me to beat my head against the, the wall is... I talk to these parents that I want my kids to be in school, I want full school, I want full athletics, and then you say, okay, have you gotten your high schooler vaccinated? Oh, no. Well, well, you know, you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. And, and so for those parents of children that are 12 and older, your best chance of keeping school in full attendance every day with sports and all, get people vaccinated. I, I think it just takes a lot of different conversations to, to get there. We've got to keep getting good information out. You know, I think the other thing for the future, we've got to try to help people in the future understand how to choose your sources for information. How do you teach people? Because all of us wade through this stuff and, and we know what are reliable sources, what aren't. And, and we need to teach kids and the public, uh, how do you assess the veracity of what you're being told? 
How do you as assess uh, sources of information that are going to be reliable so that we're not constantly, just constantly doing whack-a-mole trying to dis you know count this misinformation or this conspiracy theory? We got to help people find good sources of information to begin with. Right. Hillary, I want to move on to you. Uh, Washington is one of the more vaccinated states, but the campaign to vaccinate Washingtonians is now entering a tougher phase, a phase in which the target population increasingly consists of vaccine skeptics. So we've tried lottery and incentives. So what else should we be doing? I think we have some great examples from right here in Seattle in King County of strategies that were super effective that uh, that I hope we see replicated across the state. So um, for me, one of the frameworks that I find most helpful in terms of thinking about why we have so much vaccine hesitancy is, as David mentioned, thinking about the different types of reasons that people are vaccine hesitant. And the New York Times had a fantastic article and they have a great interactive thing that where you can look at by state, what percentage of the people who haven't gotten vaccinated, what reasons they cite for it. And they break them down into four different categories. So yes, there are the COVID skeptics. And I, I'm looking right now at Idaho's data and you have 23% are skeptics versus in Washington. For us, um, we're down at 14%. So yeah, that is a big barrier. And given how bifurcated our media is right now and divided it is, I think reaching those folks is, is particularly hard. The other group that's really hard to reach are um, the group that the New York Times refer to as system disruptors. Those are individuals who feel that the healthcare system doesn't really treat them fairly. They're, they tend to be a pretty small percentage though. So to me, what I look at are the two groups that I think are pretty low hanging fruit, the groups that are cost anxious and the groups that are watchful, which David also mentioned. Let's talk about the cost anxious ones. So cost anxious, are people, you know, we keep talking about the vaccines free, right? But nonetheless, if you are working an hourly job, you have to take time off of your job to go get vaccinated. And if your employer doesn't pay you to do that, you it is costing you money to go and get vaccinated. So one of the strategies that we've used here in King County and specifically in the city of Seattle is to take vaccination sites to the people. You know, we had Lumenfield was our big vaccination site. That site was chosen because it was so accessible to so many people. It's right on the light rail lines. Even if people are like not super excited about taking public transportation, at least they can get to it. We're not vaccinating there anymore, but for a while we were doing thousands of people per day at Lumenfield. So that was a big part of how we got to where we are. And then the, the other strategy um, that we um, leveraged really heavily here in Seattle were what we called pop-up sites. Um, and those pop-up sites tended to be in collaboration with trusted partners and often in low-income neighborhoods as well. So it really was targeting those individuals, bringing vaccines to them who otherwise were going to have difficulty getting to a vaccine site. And so that's a really important group. Then there's the watchful group. And I think David emphasized that there are definitely people who are sort of still sitting on the sidelines, waiting to see what's going on, but they're opposed to getting vaccinated at some point. And so I think continuing to message um, what we do know about the three vaccines that have been authorized for emergency use in the United States, which is that 
they're so much more effective than any of us would have dared to dream, right? So yeah, we're seeing breakthrough cases, but the vast majority of people are really well protected against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So like I said, we're just so lucky to have access to those and we're seeing really low side effects. So I know there was a lot in the media of when there were some blood clotting issues with J&J and it was literally right after I had got the J&J vaccine. And people are texting me like, are you worried? I was like, no, I'm not worried because statistically being unvaccinated, I was more likely to die from COVID-19 than I was to get once vaccinated with J&J to get that blood clotting issue. We're just, I think, continuing to message to people, yeah, it's we still have a roller coaster ahead of us. We're still watching the variants. Obviously, there may be times when a new variant comes out and that we're going to need to pull back on some of the freedom that, we, that we've been enjoying the last couple of weeks and go back to doing some masking or even some more physical distancing. But we're doing a lot better job of monitoring what's going on with those variants, doing sequencing of them, checking what's going on internationally. Getting vaccinated is really the way to go for those people who are sort of like, should I or shouldn't I? And then finally, the last strategy that I want to point out that was really heavily leveraged here in King County that I would love to see taken across not just the state of Washington, but also Oregon and Idaho as well, which is that we, the city and the county really partnered with our public school system. So they actually got into the public schools and did vaccinations at middle schools and high schools before the school year ended. So right now it's hard. All our kids are scattered to the winds and enjoying the freedom of summer. But you know, thinking about having vaccine clinics in our public schools for our kids when they come back by trusted providers, our, our nurse practitioners that are in the schools, that really is a great way to go and offer free vaccines at the same time to their parents. That would be great. Yeah, that's fantastic, Hillary. And Chunhui, Oregon is right behind Washington on vaccination rates, but like its northern neighbor, there is an urban-rural divide, and incentive-based advocacy campaigns have only moved the needle a little. So what else should Oregon be doing? Well, uh, I agree with what uh, David and Hillary just mentioned. And Oregon, uh, some county already did what uh, Hillary mentioned about bringing the vaccine uh, to the to the job, to the employment place. At the same time, in Oregon, besides rural-urban divide, uh, the, the minority population, especially Hispanic and African-American, their vaccination rate are still way uh, below the general average population. There's, there's a mix of factors. The employment, the hour wage is one factor. And for the Hispanic, uh, many of them are seasonal or migrant workers. And some of them, they don't have a, a regular places. So the, the next step will be to identify those regions, those uh, farms, and bring the vaccine to those farms. And one particular tough challenge, uh, I think they are everywhere uh, in, in every state. And the, in rural Oregon, we have a large share of that, is even to this day, there are still American who do not believe there is such thing as pandemic. I call them the pandemic deniers. And the estimation is somewhere between 10 to 15 percent. 
And this will be very tough sell uh, to ask them because if they don't believe there's a pandemic, why should they be vaccinated? And of course, they are the one who will not wear masks because there's nothing to protect against. I think we will have a big hurdle to overcome those uh, pandemic deniers. And my suggestion is given that we need higher rate of the population to be vaccinated to approach herd immunity, so we may need to compensate uh, to boost up vaccination among the young people, especially between 12 and 18. At the current, their vaccination rate are still lower than the other age group. So in order to achieve the greater protection for the entire population to compensate that we may never get them to be vaccinated for those uh, pandemic deniers, we need to vaccinate more children. And then when the vaccine become available sometime this fall for children under 12, again, we need to vaccinate, vaccinate them. And this is also conflicting message about the issue of herd immunity because uh, from federal to state and even WHO, uh, they're using different parameter of vaccination rate. A true herd immunity don't care about your age group. So the true health, the, the, the rate I have been monitoring, monitoring is all population, not just 18 above or 16 above. So we need to aim at all population to reach as high vaccination as possible. Given that uh, hard, we have a hard resistant group, the, the pandemic deniers, they will probably never get vaccinated. So we just need to vaccinate our children and young, young generations. As a follow-up question for all of you, though we've all been affected by COVID-19, the pandemic, as many of you have noted, has fallen hardest on communities of color. I know that uh, states are already taking measures to address that. Earlier this year, Washington announced that it would be tracking county vaccination rates by race and ethnicity in an effort to improve vaccine equity. Idaho initiated their own vaccine equity cooperative to address these, uh, these disparities. So Hillary and David, what is the status of these causes in your states, starting with you, Hillary? That, that has been front and center, um, both for Washington Department of Health and also um, our, the city of Seattle and, and Public Health Seattle and King County is really being strategic about making sure that people have access to vaccine. I guess I, I would like to just sort of take a step back and say, hopefully everyone who's listening is aware of this, but the, the, the reasons that those communities have been disproportionately affected is because of structural racism. It's not because of vaccine hesitancy. So we see that those communities of color are disproportionately um, ones that are working in service sectors where they have to work in person and so they've had much higher exposures. Those populations um, in some cases have much higher rates of disease that makes them um, susceptible to, uh, so comorbidities that make them susceptible to more severe impacts and also are more likely to be living in multi-generational households. That has nothing to do with inherently with race. It has to do with inequities in our society that have occurred along racial lines. So in terms of how to address those, we have to take the same approach in terms of thinking about what are the structural barriers that have created those health disparities. In terms of access, again, what I was one of the things I was talking about was really thinking about 
What are the barriers to, to access that people have, particularly in communities of color? And so, for instance, people who are in hourly jobs, um, how do we make sure that we are getting vaccines to them and not making it difficult or costly, even through indirect costs, for them to get vaccinated? Another one is really recognizing that those communities also have been disproportionately taken advantage of historically by our medical and public health systems. And so they understandably have mistrust of whether or not our systems are looking out for them, whether our agencies are looking out for their best interests. And so partnering with trusted partners in those communities has been a really important strategy. For instance, we've seen both City of Seattle and also Public Health Seattle and King County partnering, for instance, with some of our Black churches to bring vaccines to their congregates. That's one strategy. One of those things that just makes me smile is looking at how well our Native um, serving organizations have done in terms of vaccine delivery to those populations, talking to them. So for instance, the Seattle Indian Health Board has done a fantastic job of like really thinking about giving vaccines to people before when we had all these, like only people this age could get it. They said they, because they have tribal sovereignty, could do what they wanted. And so they said, we're gonna give vaccines to anyone who comes to our clinic if they want it. And that was a great strategy. It worked really well. So this is definitely one of those cases of, it's gonna take multi-pronged strategies and really thinking about what are those systemic contributors to the inequities that we're seeing. That's great insight, Hillary. And uh, David, uh, in Idaho, what's the status of uh, Idaho's own vaccine uh, equity cooperative? Well, we see the same kinds of issues that uh, Professor Godwin has just uh, described. And, and as you mentioned, Kaya, we're, we're trying to address those. I don't know that we have uh, enough data yet to, to judge how uh, successful these efforts uh, were because they've only been recently implemented. But I, I think Professor Godwin brings up a, a lot of great points. One is, again, we should not make generalizations about these populations. There's many different issues. Some may be distrustful and have good reason to be so. There's others who would love to get vaccinated, but they can't get off to, from work or they may not have transportation. And sometimes those of us that are more affluent, we just assume people, doesn't everybody have a car or doesn't everybody have a working car? At one of our clinics, a, a gentleman drove 15 miles on a flat tire to come in and get his vaccine. And we just have to remember that and keep in mind that there's a lot of obstacles uh, for a lot of these populations, including the fact you don't see a whole lot of doctor's offices in areas of, of low income. Uh, and so uh, we need to, just as Professor Godwin said, we've got to get out to those communities, but we also have to partner with those communities. We need people that they know, they trust, speak their language that can help uh, tell them when and where they can get vaccinated, uh, answer questions that they have, and so certainly we're making those efforts now. Let's hope that those are successful because uh, just as the professor said, these folks disproportionately bear the morbidity and the mortality of these public health threats. And, and we need to do something about that. Thank you for that, David. 
and uh, Chunhui vaccine data is not yet available by zip code, though the Oregon Health Authority has started to initiate similar programs. How great of a role would you say public health infrastructure plays in managing pandemics like this one? This pandemic actually exposed both the strengths and weakness of our public health infrastructure. And not just Oregon, I think throughout most states, when initially early this year, when the vaccine become available and the vaccine roll out, oftentimes uh, there's a huge lack because the county level public health infrastructure were not able to keep up uh, with the uh, resources required to do mass vaccination. And this is most likely the, the first time in over half centuries uh, we ever have to do a mass vaccination in such a short time that put our entire public health infrastructure into tests. And there were, I still remember in, in March, even in the metropolitan Portland area, uh, the county health department was not able uh, to provide enough staffing and, and logistic. And there were, there were hundreds or even thousands of uh, doses were spoiled because they were, the logistic was not there. Over time, many counties has improved, but that was with a massive mobilization of volunteers. And I think this is a, a golden opportunity for us to re-inspect how well is our public health infrastructure, not just, not just dealing with the pandemic, but in regular day-to-day -day operation in promoting population health. And I think this pandemic uh, exposed a lot of that weakness. All right, thank you very much for that, Qinhui. All right, well, we covered a lot of good ground in this episode, um, but before we wrap up, I just have one final question for all of you. So suppose someone comes up to you and says, I have a friend, a parent, or loved one, and they just don't seem that interested in getting vaccinated. What can I say to them that would encourage them to get the vaccine? What would you tell that person, um, Hillary? Yeah, that's a that's a hard one. So that's that's your disinterested person. And I think um, I would focus on two things. One would be um, how the good data that we have so far that supports both the, the vaccines that have been authorized in the United States are very safe and also very effective. Um, so so it's a pretty low risk undertaking to get a vaccine with a lot of potential benefit. And then I, I honestly would share a story of, you know, I lost a younger sibling to, to cancer and I'm also a cancer survivor myself. Um, fortunately, knock on wood, very healthy right now. But I remember both when I was going through chemo and when my brother was going through chemo, it wasn't a pandemic, but it was still, I got, it was so hard because people just weren't careful about not spreading um, diseases which to them seemed like no big deal, but to, to me or to my brother could have been life-threatening. And so I guess I would just ask them to think of, of those folks in our society who, through no fault of their own, don't have the benefit of being able to um, get protection from a vaccine um, and who they could be protecting by getting vaccinated. So pretty low cost to them, low risk to them huge benefit for really vulnerable members of our society. Thank you. And David. 
Yeah, you know, as I, I said, my, my preference would be if I could talk to the person themselves so I could find out exactly why they're hesitant. But if, if I had to go through the other person, I, I probably would just make two points. Number one, this is not over and you remain at risk, arguably more risk. And even though the chances may be very good that whoever this person is, is not going to get, is not going to die if they get infected. I would just point out that we, we do know the people that are really high risk. We know how to identify them, but everybody else, we really don't know how to tell whether somebody that is middle-aged, for example, if they're going to do perfectly fine, or if they're going to be one of the people ending up in the hospital on the ventilator. And, and so my first point was just be, don't have regrets. Don't wait till you get sick and then say, oh, I wish I had gotten vaccinated. The second thing I would say is, even if you're not worried about yourself, just realize that as you are trying to get on with your life, you're probably coming into contact with a lot of other people that are very high risk and you may not know it. And, uh, and, and so do it to protect them, even if you're not worried about yourself. All right, thank you for that, David. And uh, Chun Hui, what would you tell this person? I think uh, both Hillary and David has said uh, the most important things. I fully agree with what both uh, Hillary and, and, and David said. And I just want to, to supplement that as I commented earlier. Well, we may end the pandemic, but the COVID-19 will still be with us for a while. And so it's important to know in order for us to never go into a pandemic mode, at least not with the COVID-19, uh, vaccination is an important way for us to keep a relative normal life and activity and also, it's not just to protect the person who are in question, but also to protect the family, the friend, uh, or the network, or the colleagues. And I can even say, if, depending on the person's inclination, uh, to protect our community, protect our, our school, our job places, our, our nations, it's, it's, uh, it's love, kind, and patriotic to do so. All right, thank you very much, wonderfully said. All right, well, panelists, thank you so much for those keen insights. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for joining us for our July 2021 episode of PNW Currents with our guests, Dr. David Pate, Dr. Chunhui Chi, and Professor Hilary Godwin. We hope you enjoy the discussion and hopefully gain some knowledge that you can apply to your own advocacy. Each one of us can and should be public health, uh, each one of us can and should be public health leaders in our own communities. We invite you to join us next month when we'll discuss ideas for electoral reform and strategies for increasing voter turnout. To learn more about the work that NPI does, be sure to check out our website at nwprogressive.org. Again, that is nwprogressive.org. There you will find a transcript of this episode and the PNW Currents Archive, as well as our poll findings, State House Bill Tracker, Elections Hub, and our publications like the Cascadia Advocate and In Brief. See you next time. For NPI, I'm Kaya Burnt. Mm -hmm.